This is Music Ed Amplified. Did you think I forgot about you? I know it's been a while, but the podcast is back until the end of the school year, which is only like 4,000 years away from today. How the heck are you? In case you didn't know, you've landed at the Music Ed Amplified podcast, a place where the talk is all music ed all the time with lots of discussion about justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and access thrown into the mix because, well, we need to be having these discussions. And in that vein, I want to talk a little bit about fear on the road to becoming an anti-racist person and professional. In the past couple years, I've talked a lot about the need for change in our profession, in our education system, and in our country. And maybe I often feel, or at least sound, incredibly bold and empowered. But let me keep this Jedi moment very real. When I am with my students in music, and I encounter an authentic moment where I'm able to capitalize on what we're learning to move the ball forward when it comes to these issues for my students, it can be very hard. Suddenly, I become hyper-aware of the aides-to-classroom or teachers who are with me or the parents listening at home with their virtual kids. Will they become angry or confused when I start talking about these issues? Will I get in trouble? Why do I care? Should I care more? Am I being paranoid? Or am I just looking for an excuse not to be brave? Let me be a little more specific. Right now, I'm doing a unit in third grade about the music and culture of the Philippines. Both the kids and I are very excited and have already learned so much, and we're having a lot of fun. But today, I ran into one of those, are you going to put your money where your mouth is strong moments. I started to talk a little bit about Spain's 300-year colonization of the Philippines as a part of us learning about the country. And then I gave them this scenario. Imagine you built a beautiful house on a nice piece of land. Maybe you made a basketball court and a, I don't know, a dance studio, and you built a pool in addition to maybe 10 bedrooms in the house. The outside looked beautiful and you made an amazing garden where you grew lots of vegetables and, and people around came to understand that your house was something pretty special. Now, imagine one day I show up and basically say, man, your house is fantastic. Um, I like it so much and, and I'm, I have so much to offer and so many ideas for what could be done with the place. And to be honest, I need a bigger place and I need a good garden. So I'm going to take your house and your land. And imagine I say, you can fight me or just understand how powerful I am and that this is inevitable and accept it. Now you can leave or you could stay here on the property and, and I'll build you this little hut and maybe I'll even let you keep working and I'll pay you a little bit. But bottom line, your house is now my house. So the kids just laughed because to them, this scenario was inconceivable. I won't go into everything, but you might be able to imagine the discussion that followed. We talked about what a colonizer was and, and what do they do and a little bit about the consequences. But when I asked them if they were aware that this kind of power grab happens all over the world and throughout history... And it's also happened right here in our country where we are, you know, learning the United States of America. I think what surprised me was that not one student of the many who volunteered to talk at this point said anything about indigenous people. One student talked about how, you know, a long time ago, England wanted to take over the colonies and then America kicked England's butt and told them, to leave and don't take over our country because this is America. That was it. They seemed not to know anything about the indigenous peoples who were here for thousands of years before the first European colonizers arrived. But as we talked about it, I wavered. Was I going too far? Was this, quote, not my job to talk about, end quote? I will admit that after a couple of the adults gave me a look or two, I considered dropping it. 
But in my mind, I said to myself, there is nothing wrong with teaching these kids about the reality of what has gone on in a way that is appropriate for their grade level. And thankfully, I steeled myself and pressed on for just a little while longer. Did I go on forever like I easily could have because of how I feel about it? No, I did it in an age-appropriate way and, of course, in a way that authentically tied into what we were talking about in the lesson. And I hope that they retain something important from that conversation or at least be compelled to learn more as they grow. But I want to confess to you that I felt that discomfort and worry creeping in and thought about giving it up and just dropping the subject and then thinking, I won't talk about it in the next grade level class. But I didn't. And I talked about it with each group. Perhaps you're listening to this and you're frustrated with me because you think what I did was the very bare minimum and that I should have done more work. And you're probably right about that. If you're like me and... I know I am. Maybe you feel what I'm saying. You want to make an impact for good in your students' lives and thinking, but you get nervous. Maybe you think people are going to get upset with me or this isn't my job. I shouldn't be talking about these things. I want you to know you're not alone and that we have to encourage each other to be brave and speak up, to keep pressing forward to do what is right and best for our students and for our communities. If we're not brave enough to talk to students about racism or privilege, discrimination, inequity, and injustice, how can we hope for and expect students to do it themselves as they get older? It's time we started building our courage. Today's guest is Tiffany Unarse Berry. Tiffany taught general music, ukulele, choir, orchestra, and band for 14 years in the California public school system. She has full Orfschulwerk certification through the San Francisco International Orf Course. She is a performer, presenter, and published author, and also an adjunct professor in music education at SJSU, where she currently serves as the administrative coordinator of the three-summer master in music education program, and the course director of the Orf Schulwerk teacher training. As a fellow Filipina-American music educator, I was so honored to talk to Tiffany, and I am excited for you to hear the conversation. Well, a huge welcome to today's guest, Tiffany Unarse Berry. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Um, thank you for being willing to share this time with us. Thank you for having me, Missy. I have seen and heard so many wonderful things about you online, and I'm oh just, boy. I was so honored that you asked me. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. All the things. All the yes. things. <laughs> like I always tell people, um, I'm very disappointing in real life. So I, I kind of like to Whatever, perpetuate. Stop it. <laughs> I like stop to perpetuate it. that online mythology. Um, well, if anyone out there has heard the podcast, you know that. I'm a sucker for this, like, what was music to you in your childhood story, especially for anyone who has chosen a career in music, and especially, of course, music educators. Do you mind sharing the things you remember about the place of music in your life when you were a child, and how that eventually led to you becoming um, a music teacher? Yeah, well, music sort of existed in three different ways when I was a kid. Um, like it was at home at first okay. uh, with my parents and, you know, they're influenced, you know, they're immigrants from the Philippines. But when they came to the United States, they were like totally into American music and, and like um, easy listening. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Ooh. So like, you know, like, like the Beatles, the Platters, Elvis, Sweet. and, you know, like Diana Ross and Lionel oh, Richie. Man, you, and so <laughs> you got great music. I got like yeah. Bobby Vinton that who nobody even knows. <laughs> <laughs> but then they also brought some of the, you know, Filipino pop music also. So there was like Jose Marichan. I don't know if you right. No, I don't know him, anything. But, okay. So yeah, him and like Sh Sharon Cuneta. Like and then Leia Leia Salonga later. Like now we I know already her. in the yeah. United States. Yeah. And so their influence, um, you know, from, you know, both both the Philippines and the United States. Um, and then 
um, they told me that like I loved singing. So I would like every time we'd have people over, I would like sing for them. And and I remember my dad, he actually brought home one of those old school um, karaoke machines. Like, you know, right. where the cartridge is like super huge. Right. Anyway, but there was a song on there and I was like, in first grade, like I didn't quite know how to read, but right. I, I remember watching the words like in the booklet for put your head on my shoulder. Aww. And that was the song that I would sing. You sing I was all like the learning time? how to read right. karaoke on that machine. <laughs> and that was the song that I learned how to sing on karaoke. Um, and so, yeah, that was, and then Whitney Houston was big, like in our house. Oh, my yeah. mom took me and my sister to go see her in 1987 <gasps> when she was at the Oakland Coliseum. And I still, I still remember that. That's like one of the highlights of, of, of my childhood is going to, to her concert. So that was home. And then like, mm -hmm. I had the peer group, which mm -hmm. was, you know, was like my siblings too. So my older brother, you know, he was into R&B and rap. So like Tone Loke and Digital Underground and, right. you know, Salt and Pepper. And then, right. yeah. And then my, and then my younger sister, she's just one year younger than me. And so we were into like, you know, R&B also, but like Boys to Men, Blackstreet and, right. and like Mariah wow. Carey. And, and then in high school, then I got introduced to through friends, like alternative rock. So like R.E.M. and, and Oasis and, and you know garbage and then when ska became popular and everything yeah that was that was the peer group and then okay. the third part was school then mm -hmm. school was all like western european classical because i played violin and uh. um i was in orchestra from second grade like through high school um and i did some school plays and, and musicals but it was mostly you know just very very eurocentric training right. and so I, I mean and I, I of, of me and my brother and my sister like I was the one who like just loved music I always like wanted to you know sing and play and just do whatever and my brother and my sister were kind of you know they were forced like my yeah. parents made them do it but I was the one who, <laughs> who wanted to um, and then senior year of high school I was you know you have to take like eight classes but I had a bunch of free un free spaces and I took guitar and orchestra again and then I took choir and that's when I like fell in love with singing again. And I really wanted to start singing, you know, just like doing some serious vocal study, but I really wanted to do jazz. I wanted to like wow. be a lounge singer, but then Sweet. somehow I ended up doing classical because I didn't really have a lot of guidance. Like when, you know, my parents kind of didn't want me to go into music. And so I, right. I kind of went behind their back and did it, <laughs> <laughs> which was not, which was drama, but I didn't actually want to be a music teacher. It, it, it's, I really just wanted to sing. And so, because I was, I was already entrenched in the classical music world. Um, I was singing for Die Zauberflöte um, with Opera San Jose. I have this a small role as a, cool. as a third spirit. Right. And I had just gotten married. I was 23. And I was going to start auditioning for things. And the rehearsal schedule for opera is like, I just... I, I mean, it was fun and I loved it, but you know, I, it, I just didn't love it enough. Like it, it was, a, it was very taxing and it was very, it was very busy. It took a lot of time, a lot of nights away from home. And I had, you know, my husband and I, we had talked about starting a family and, and I just thought like, I don't think I, I don't think this is for me. And right. so I just, um, I, I was thinking of, of going into teaching as, as backup and then um, doing the Zappa Flota actually was the catalyst for me to, to decide, like, I think I'm, I think I'm going to go into teaching because I want to have a family and, and then little, you know, once you're in it, then you're like, Oh, this is still busy. Right. <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> but at I least you could go, go home at night. <laughs> I could go home. Sometimes it was still late. Right. <laughs> but, absolutely. But yeah, it was a little bit more. And, and you know what? I ended up falling in love with teaching too. So yeah. even though it wasn't my first choice, you know, I, I ended up like really loving it. So. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that. Like I said, I really love to hear that. And I'm always so interested because part of the stuff I love to research has to do with like music in early childhood and, you know, music, um, the home environment for very, very young children. So I love yeah. to hear that. Um, and the way I came, well, I knew who you were, but when people started talking about your new book, Songs of the Sun. Um, I got so excited. I just, it's so funny. I saw it and I was like, I just immediately bought it. Like I wasn't even, 
Okay, and I do that a lot with a lot of things, but this was special. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> like, yeah, I like, I have to have those shoes right away. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember getting so excited and, and then I was looking at your social media and then just and then the book came and I just thought this is so cool. And as a person with admittedly very limited knowledge about my own personal Filipino musical heritage, thank you for making this book. Mm. I was so thrilled to see it that I started telling people about it. And then I was like, I got to ask her to to be on the podcast and talk about this. And what's kind of really cool is it sent me on down a good rabbit hole of learning about Filipino like folk music, pop music, stuff that I really wasn't exposed to or or that I can't remember if I, I was exposed mm. to. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. <laughs> um, so I would love to hear about what compelled you to write it. And in the inscription, you write, and this is a quote from it, to every Filipino, Filipina, Filipinex living between worlds, we belong to all of them. And I just... I don't know, I felt that on kind of a granular level. So I'm wondering, you know, what that phrase meant to you and how it, that factored into why you chose to write the book and other things, anything you want to share about why you chose to put this collection together. Well, I didn't initially plan to write a book. <laughs> it was not um, It was not on my radar. It was, I think, around... Like it was 2017, 2018. Um, you know, I, I was working on my my master's degree, and you know, I had to do a graduate project. And part of my graduate project was applying to the um, apprenticeship program through AOSA. And in in 2018, I had actually got double rejected by AOSA. Ooh. AOSA rejected me for the apprenticeship program, and then a proposal <laughs> that I co-wrote. Ouch for national conference and that got rejected too at the uh, like around the same time and i i was i was super sad i was just so of course, depressed of course. and like licking my wounds for like a few months and then i started to um sure should be saying this but i i started to get pissed like i yeah. got angry i was sure. i was mad and and so kind of out of spite i wrote another proposal for Filipino folk songs that I had been using in school, like at my at my school, and I just you know I just yeah. mocked one up and I, I I sent it in for the next conference and just said like you know they're gonna reject this too so you know yeah. whatever right and um they totally didn't <laughs> and I was like oh shoot Whoops. they called my bluff right um, right right okay so I'm now I'm gonna do it and might as well and um so I presented my first session at the 2019 national conference in Salt Lake City. And that's when I that's when I did the Filipino folk songs presentation there. And Amy Curtis Fitzner, who's a big orf person, she was in one of my sessions and like she talked to me after and I already knew of her. I'd gone to her sessions. Yeah, she's awesome. And then she yeah, and then she you know, she talked to me about her daughter and, you know, just like how much she enjoyed the session. And she stayed in contact with me. And we, you know, we didn't really know each other personally. I knew of her. And then um, she introduced me to Brent and they both were like, you need to write a book. Like, you should, we want you to write a book. You're ready to do this. And, that's and so that, that's how the book got started. I, I didn't, um, it was their idea. Like, not <laughs> they made me. <laughs> they made me do it. So, and I, I'm glad that they did. And the the inscription is interesting because, like, um, I remember I have a I have this like a core group of, of Filipino friends on my on my phone, and I remember I was I you know sent them a photo of just the front page and like right. the inscription, and they were totally oh I'm crying I don't know why I'm crying but I'm <laughs> crying I'm not sure why, and um, I I included that because well I used to go to the Philippines fairly frequently when I was a kid, my parents would take us there every two or three years until I was about 15 years old. And, you know, I hadn't been there for, gosh, you know, like 25 years. And then my husband who's white, and then my kids who are half white, uh, we took them to the Philippines in 2017. And I was like the end of 2017 during Christmas time. And just kind of being in the Philippines again, made me, it, it reminded me of how stuck I sort of felt between 
you know, these two identities, like being sure. American and being Filipino. And wherever I was, if I was in the Philippines, like even as a kid, like I, I wanted to be more Filipino. I didn't speak Tagalog enough. And like, you know, I, yeah. I like want to look more and fit in there. And then when I come back to the United States, I'm like, right. I'm not really, I'm not really American. And then, you know, like I don't have an accent, but you know, you just kind of don't feel like you're you exist in either place. And, mm. and when I saw, I thought when I saw my husband and my kids there, you know, that it would really impact them. I watched them a lot. Like when we were in the car, when we got off the airplane, whenever we went into a town or like there was food that they hadn't tried, or we went visited other family members and other households. Um, I always watched them and just seeing them kind of identify with you know, being there and and the culture and and kind of seeing themselves in it, it made me it made me see that I was being impacted by hmm. it by by their experience um, because I saw that they saw that that I belonged right and and because I was sh you know sh I was part of that place and and sharing things with them so I knew. And, you know, even seeing my spouse, you know, he's this white guy amidst all these Filipinos like, and right, he's right. like embracing my identity and my family. And I I sort of felt like, you know, I, it's a choice. Like I, I make this choice for myself, it, even if someone or a group doesn't choose me, like I choose myself, I choose to belong right. to this. Um, and it, you know, I mean, I was like almost 40, like when I had that realization, but that last trip made me see that I didn't have to choose that I didn't right. have to be, you know, one or the other. I could be both. And and that we all live in in the worlds that we choose to live in mm. and, and be in and exist in. And I, I make that choice for myself, just as my parents made the choice to take us to the United States for, for their benefit and for ours. Right. Um, and so that's what it means to me that, that you know, my, it was my realization that, like, I don't have to choose between, you know, these two things or these multiple things that, that I've lived in like I, I belong to all of them and we all do so. right I think that's great and it's so interesting to think of you know your family going to the Philippines it was the first time right for mm -hmm. them their first time yeah you know and that thought of them seeing you and probably looking to you as you know expert quote-unquote right you know where I you were like, kind of me. like yeah <laughs> right and you're like yeah. oh well maybe maybe I am more than I thought I was. Yeah. And then like yeah. making that choice, I won't go on long about this, but you know, this is a tension I felt for a long time, but I think I sublimated it like this. Well, I'm half Filipino, but I hardly know anything about it. So I don't really think I'm Filipino. So I guess I'll just put that to the side, which is literally what I did you know yeah just, yeah oh I did yeah. too and yeah. um it's only been in the past few years and as I have shared I think on the podcast one of the things that happened just in the past two years is my oldest son started college he joined the Filipino American oh, <laughs> uh, association cool. of yeah. his own volition like I I you know he's very social very you know outgoing but anyway watching him you know, I kind of was like, why did you do that? And he said, I don't know. I just wanted to learn more and find out more. And he's coming back and he's talking about his kuya and he's talking about like all oh. this. And it was, we just started talking about it a lot. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, look at this kid as white and American as can be, mm -hmm. who's like, I want to learn about this. And he's like, this is part of who I am. So, yeah. and I yeah. think it's so, it's not strange, but felt strange to be like, well, you know what? Me too. Like I'm going to start. Yeah. So it's not, it's not over. We can still, we can yeah. still learn more about ourselves. Yeah, and, of course. Of course. Yeah. And we should yeah. be doing that. I think it's just, we get stuck into this idea of like, well, I'm older, so this is pretty much who I am, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And well, society does that for yeah. us. Oh, it for sort sure. of pegs us in, you know, like in these boxes, like, mm -hmm. oh yeah. And it starts early. It starts yeah. super early, but I think the, the culture is changing in the United States for, you know, just, in various ways, in various Absolutely. ways. But, you know, as people like you, you know, mm -hmm. just that are highlighting voices that that speak to to teachers of color that yeah. represent them, I think is, is so is so important right now. Yeah, for so. sure. And I 
I was so thrilled when we were talking this week about um, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month and some of the white kids in my class, they brought up, like they were saying, you know, I'm learning, you know, my mom and dad are telling me that there's a lot of these like hate crimes that are happening, Mm -hmm. but I am happy that they are talking about this. Yeah. At home. And they are so excited about this like Filipino unit that I'm doing. (laughs) They're Mm, just like, (laughs) this is so cool. And today we were talking about the beaches and lagoons of the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And they were like, we're all going to move there together. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, no, we're not. (laughs) I'm going by myself. That's right. You can come see me. (laughs) Um, Well, speaking of the collection and, and not as happy of terms, but important. Uh, Recently, you posted on social media uh, to talk about the need to take accountability for the fact that after the publication of the collection, you learned that one of the songs was problematic. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you uh, how much I appreciated the the way you handled it. Mm -hmm. I want to give credit where credit is due when somebody has the vulnerability and honesty to say, I want you to know exactly what happened. You humbly and sincerely apologized. You explained what happened and how you were taking steps to rectify. And you did it in a really straightforward way. Would you be willing to share what happened? uh, And if it's possible, include what you remember feeling as like when you learned about the racist meaning of a word in the song that you didn't know about before? Yeah. Um, Well, it's it actually started when I when I was doing um, workshops on Zoom. And so it was just like in the last in the last few months. So so the book came out in February. And then, um, you know, I had been booked to present a, um, a couple sessions. And then I think it was in March. And I hadn't presented on this particular piece, Jack and Boy, right. which is like, the you know, one of the Filipino versions of Rock, Paper, Scissors. And I had been asked to present a like two 20 minute sessions for a Kodai conference, um, a local one like in California. Okay. And one of them was going to be the piece. It was a small session. There were only like five, four or five people. No, there were there were five people in it, including me. And I think all, almost all of them were Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, and but one of them was white. And it, this guy, you know, I actually knew him. He's a fellow music teacher in the Bay Area. And when, you know, I was presenting and when I said the translation of the um, the piece, I saw his face and he didn't make a face. He didn't do anything. I, I was thinking like, did he do something weird? But I just didn't feel right. Like there was something strange. Something off. And I, I, I like his, I, and, and, you know, and it went on and I just kind of chalked it up to nerves. So, so that, and that was the first time I presented it. And then I had another one, I think uh, a few, a, a week or two later with Vandercook um, College. Okay. Um, and then that one, there was more, there were like 40 people in that workshop. Um, and I, again, presented the piece and there were uh, there was a lot more white people, <laughs> and, right. um, but for some reason it was like whenever I saw a white guy, I again like when I said the translation ongoi, which is which is um, Tagalog for monkey, and and I said it in English, and I just didn't I didn't feel right. Like I felt I felt, and it was every time I saw like a white a white person or a white guy. Um, so, and then I had presented it again. <laughs> Right. The a local ORF chapter here, actually, it was in early April and there were mostly Filipinos actually in this group. Uh, but there were a few a few white people. And it just like every time I just it, it just it grew like this, like unsettled feeling like I, something's not right about this. And I, I think um, I I called my cousin in the Philippines and I just said, like, I need to know. I, you know, I, I talked to various family members who like live abroad, who live in the United States and speak Tagalog. And I said, like, is is Ungoy doesn't mean something else. Like, I feel like even the context that it is, because the way that the, that the song or the chant goes is, you know, whoever loses the game is, is a monkey. Right. And, you know, it's it's teasing. It's just it's it's it, but, you know, in the context of the United States, like I was like, this isn't something's not right about this. Mm-hmm. And when I asked my cousin in the Philippines, like, how is it used there? Like in just 
random conversations. And he said, right. well, it means monkey. That's that's what it means. But it's also used to insult someone when um, when you want to call someone stupid, ugly um, or darker skin. Wow. When as soon as I heard that, I, I just thought like, OK, this is a problem. <laughs> like, sure, I, can't, right. I, I don't I'm not OK with this. And. You know, I, again, I talked to a lot of family members and, you know, told them, you know, I know we played this and, and a lot of kids play it, but it's just it's not right. And, you know, they they were very supportive of me. They they they're trying to wrap their heads around it, too. You know, like sure, the, the controversy course. around it, because they're like, you know, it's it's a game. It's just right. A game and we've and always played it. And- yeah. And we played it. And it's, you know, if at worst, like you're teasing the loser, like, you know, who you know, if somebody loses the game, you, you know, they're the monkey. But. Um, there were two things in particular that I, as I was like kind of totally losing sleep over it. I, yeah, I bet. Um, the first thing was um, I, I had uh, on like I was looking online for things about, you know, just the word itself. And I found a article that was written um, last year in June um, in 2020. Um, it was an article on um, racism in Filipino sports. Um, and it, it basically was just kind of bringing light to these incidences between professional players and then also from fans, like who will behave in a very racist way, you know, using words like ongoy, acting like a monkey, like towards like, you know, black players Wow. and, and how this is a problem. And so that was one. And then the other thing happened was just sort of my own personal like reflection. Um, I imagined, I thought, okay, so maybe I just, because I was thinking about the book and and my publisher and how much drama it would be to pull out the piece. And, and I thought, okay, well, maybe I just won't present on it. And, and then the book is, you know, it's there and I'm not, I'm not bringing it. But you're not highlighting it. it. Yeah. But I, then I thought, what's going to happen if I if I just don't present on it? Well, it's in the book. There's going to be white teachers who are going to teach it to kids. And those kids, a lot of them are students of color. A lot of them are black kids. A lot of them are Filipino kids. The unintended, but but present, you know, like in the shadows, like the racism that's in the language. Like I just, right. like I couldn't stomach it. And like it made me, I just, that was like just the thought of that. Like I couldn't. I couldn't, it just makes me, makes my stomach like churn. So, so I, that, that's what sort of led me to, I did, didn't want to perpetuate that and yeah. be, you know, have that, know that, know that I made a choice to um, let that be because it wasn't right. I knew it in my heart. So, so I called myself out on it and yeah. here we are, like I'm moving forward <laughs> with, with, without the piece. And, right. you know, I talked to my publisher and, and, you know, they were great, really supportive. I was worried about it. That's fantastic. But they understood. And, and I, you know, I had multiple conversations with how, 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 what, how I felt about this and what it meant. And they listened and, and were really understanding. I, I still feel like a great deal of like guilt and shame around like, just not knowing better prior to the publishing of the book, but I'm, I'm working on those feelings and, and trying my best to do right by others. And, and also to just be true to myself and what, what I think is the right thing to do. And that's just part of like the, the painful process of it's, it's necessary and, and painful to do just like that, that kind of learning the growing pains of learning. Yeah. And, and it doesn't end in adulthood. So it <laughs> no, keeps going. It, it gets worse sometimes. <laughs> That's mine. Yeah. I said this, you know, to you somewhere on social media, but it's the absolute truth. I just thought this is the embodiment of no better, do better. Right. So, you know, yeah. the reason why you couldn't rest was because you'd come to this realization and then kind of wrestling with the practical outcropping of what that meant like Mm -hmm. you know there's something to be said for like well if I just ignore it like if I kind of and I don't you know lift it up Mm -hmm. maybe this will kind of go away and I think that I don't think that I know that for myself that's something I have actively thought before even with pieces that I really love like nobody's gonna know if I do this, if I continue to do Mm -hmm. this piece with my kids, and I think the kids will probably be fine. You know, I have been guilty of that. But there's this thing inside of us that's like, well, something's wrong, and something's wrong. And you're just gonna have to stand up for what is right. The thing that we are 
not you, but me personally, like preaching yeah. to my students all the time, you know, you have to do what's right, even when it's hard. And I just thought that was really, you know, a brave stance that you took it. Maybe brave is not the right word, but it, it was, I think it was courageous, but, but most importantly, necessary. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just owning it owning it and yeah. that's, it's a hard thing to do I mean I, I just like had this conversation with my, my youngest son who who <laughs> destroyed his dad's <laughs> laptop out of anger and oh. um he he felt bad and he was like you know making excuses mm -hmm. and like you know but he felt terrible and I just said like this is hard it's hard when you mm -hmm. make a mistake when you and, and you didn't realize you were going to hurt somebody or you didn't realize you were going to break something that cost like hundreds of dollars but right you just got to own it. You got to yeah. own it and, and, you know, say you're sorry and um, do what you can to make it, make it better. They might not forgive you and that's okay. But as long as like you, you're responsible for, for the choice that you made, the consequences that, that were the result of that. So. Yeah. And yeah. just being, it's something I, my kids, if they were listening to this, they would just laugh all the time. I'm like, before you leave this house, if I can't help you be a person who just stops making excuses, owns up to what they've done, and then, like, makes it right and moves forward instead of, well, she did that, which is what, mm -hmm. no, I forgot to get this thing. I lashed out at him in anger. I, you know, just call yeah. it what it is and then move forward. And I think when I hear your story, even though I'm not going to invalidate your feelings of guilt or, you know, my feeling is you don't have anything to be ashamed of. You didn't know, and then you knew, and then you had a little bit of disequilibrium, and then you made the right yeah. choice. You know, I'm still which, here. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah, and you still have so much to offer and teach. And I think for anybody who's on this road, uh, you know, to become an anti-racist, anti which is like how I say it all the time, you have to be willing to be open to those moments mm -hmm. and, you know, not let the fear of what other people are going to think, what other people, you know, which is a very powerful force. Yeah. You know, in spite of that, I'm going to do, in spite of the fact that my publisher is going to be like, you know, initially, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. what a nightmare. <laughs> you know, this is like mm -hmm. practically speaking. Well, we're going to do it. So, Thank you for being willing to talk about it, uh, to talk about what obviously was pretty painful experience, but a valuable one, uh, yeah, especially yeah. as a model sure. to now thousands of people. And then exponentially thousands of students are mm -hmm. have received the benefit of you grappling with doing the right thing. So thank you for doing that. But let's get back to the collection itself. Mm -hmm. What does this book mean to you um, as as a Filipino woman, as a mother, as a teacher? And, and what kind of things are you hoping to see it accomplish uh, for anyone who gets the book and wants to use it, either with their own family or with the students they teach? Um, well, as, as far as the book's meaning, I, I think that I think it's a just an expression of my my gratitude and kind of like a homage to you know my parents and my family and and the ancestors and the the Philippines the land where you know they and I came from and and then all of the identities that you mentioned you know being being born a Filipina in the United States being a mother to kids who are also Filipino and then also being a Filipino American music teacher my my sister-in-law was was funny when i when you know we were working on the layout um, of right. the book Brent had a special word for it but i can't remember what it was <laughs> Me neither. and she saw my dedication and she was like that's too many people. Like, why? You know, save some for for your next book. Why right, are you dedicating right. and thanking so many people? And and um, I I was like, that's not how I roll. Like, right? I give my all. Like, I need to. If I'm in, I'm all in. And so, um, I think when my um my my brother my brother my older brother passed away in 2019. You know, and, oh, and no, I'm so sorry. The, the book like is is dedicated to his memory as well. And, um, you know, he was 44 years old when he died. And wow. um, I think about that. It was very sudden. And oh. and how very how very short this time is 
that we have like in this world and, and how suddenly our time could be over. Ever since that happened to, to, to him and our family, like I, I, I always, you know, it's, it's sort of our motto has been like seize the day, like you just yeah. got to live life to, to the fullest. And so I needed all of the parts of me to be included in the book, which includes like all of the Filipinos that came before me because I'm a descendant of theirs and I'm, I'm, I'm here because of them. I'm thankful they made me and that I can like do this and and share some of the things that I have learned and continue to learn. Um, As far as my hope, um, you know, for, for people who pick up the book, whenever a Filipino person will contact me via email or talk to me or or send me a, you know, like a, a, a DM, they'll say, thank you for writing this book. And I will tell them, you know, I wrote it for us mm. because we didn't get to see ourselves at school at all. Like, yeah. and, and when we did, it was sort of like, you know, in the guise of like history, you know, in the United States connection to, you know, actually it was if, if at all, like if you ever heard anything about the Philippines in, in school, it was always like just like a sliver of information, <laughs> like sure. in history. My hope with this book is that Filipino kids will see expressions of themselves and their families and schools in a way that, you know, that, that hasn't existed before. And I think that as years go by, we're getting better at doing that. And I am happy to contribute in a way so that somebody feels seen in the classroom in the way that we didn't get to yeah, for sure. be seen in that, that expression of, of identity being Filipino and being proud of it. Well, you know, I was thinking about it because like I've said now a few times, I'm, I'm doing this the first time I'm talking about the Philippines in any intentional way at school, mm-hmm. other than like a passing mention about being Filipino or in the context of, you know, talking about somebody from a different country. Oh, I, you know, my mom is an immigrant. But one thing that it's so funny, it's like, of course, like if I sat down and wrote, like, why are you sharing this with your students? I would write these things. But when it happens in real life, it's so powerful. But in these classes with these students, I thought this was so interesting. We are babysitting the kindergartners (laughs) in our school, the specialists. Um, Like we're not teaching them. We're just going into their rooms. But I was talking to one little boy. Um, and I didn't realize his older sister was a student because I hadn't met them before, the kindergartners. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, you're Dr. Strong. Um, we talk about you at dinner <laughs> because my sister and his sister is so quiet, like so oh. introverted. She barely mm-hmm. says anything to me. And here he is saying also, she loves when you say Filipino power, uh, Filipino power <laughs> activate. Right. Because I always say that. But he said, she said, you're talking about the Philippines. And we had this whole talk at our table about she's going to learn songs and she's going to learn things. And then this other kid who has a lot of issues, he said to me, um, you know, Dr. Shunk, can I get in front of the class? It was so it was like a poster, you know, child for (laughs) what you're trying to do to to represent the students in your in your program. He said, my mom and I practiced I'm going to teach because you said we're going to be co-teachers um, about the Philippines so yeah. he got up and was like this is a jeepney a jeepney and he's like <laughs> saying he's like you could tell it's almost memorized what he's saying yeah. and I was like wow that's amazing and then the other little girl said I can't wait to learn about this because I don't talk about it yeah. you know with my friends so I think um, this is what it's all about. I hope somebody that's listening now, um, maybe who is uh, from a place, a culture that's never represented or very rarely referred to, is inspired to do something. Because I think that teachers are hungry for authentic, engaging, um, mm-hmm. wonderful material uh, to to bring to their students. So for anyone who's listening, uh, who's not familiar with Filipino culture or music and they want to change it and they think, I'm going to get this book. And of course, we're going to share links to the book. Do you have any kind of starting out tips or steps that they could take? 
Like, what is a what is a good starting point, as it, in your perspective, for a person who doesn't really know much of anything? If you were talking to them, is there a, an activity, a song they would say, "Here's a great place to start." Now, I'm pretending to ask this for everybody else, but I'm really asking for myself. <laughs> but let's help the other people who need help because I don't need any help. <laughs> I'm already fully formed. And no. You got, you got it. Um, so I, I mean, there there are a couple of um, there are a couple of songs in English, and and so I would say I would say starting with those two songs. I have two hands, and then planting rice. The, my cousin in the Philippines, you know, he was we were just talking, and he was saying that a lot of tourists go to the Philippines. Um, you know, non-Filipinos will go, and they're nervous because, you know, when they're walking around, they they get lost. They, they're worried that someone doesn't speak. Everyone in the Philippines speaks English. Yes, everyone <laughs> does, and 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 speak. That's a consequence of the colonial history with the United States. So it's 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 required, you know, when they're in school. But everyone speaks English, so so I would say that that's like the easiest. That would be where to start. And then, you know, when I was, you know, whenever, whenever, whenever I'm looking through like new books or materials of a culture that I'm not familiar with, then I, I actually look for the, the the text that's the shortest. Yes. <laughs> and, There's no um, shame in it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I mean, honestly, like I I I'm a singer, and I have a hard time member memorizing text. Um, and so. I think the shorter, the sweeter, and the you know the more repetitive, the better. Um, so look for the the shorter Tagalog texts in the book. You know, my editor Brent Hall um, with Beaten Path, he is so great about getting these like supplemental materials um, included in the book, like audio files and the lyric sheets and everything. Those are really helpful. I I I wish those were available to me when and, <laughs> yeah. and that every resource had that. Not all of them do, but you know, like I think that, you know, when when you're trying to learn a song from another culture, just hearing, you know, having those audio files and hearing Absolutely. them, like sleeping with them. You know, when yeah. I'm like trying to memorize a song, I'm singing it all day and yep. I'm like listening. I'm listening to in it. the car. I'm a like yeah. in the car person. Right. Yeah. And and then like, you know, knowing that like, okay, my kids have to learn this. My students. And so how yeah. long did it take me to practice? And like right. you know, they need that too. So so those those are the places I think I would start. Start with the English first and then, you know, look for you know, if you're feeling bold and you've got like a good grasp on the phonetics and everything, then then go for the the longer longer text ones. But I generally whenever I pick pieces for myself and to do with my students, you know, I'm, so it's very subjective. Like I, I, I'm, but then I'm also looking for ease and, you know, what is going to help me learn it and the kids learn it as quickly as possible, but also just kind of delving in deeper into, you know, the work. So we're not right. just spending like all the time, like memorizing lyrics. And, right, right. You know, it's not about that. It's, you know, that's very small sliver of it but yeah knowing yeah. what it's about knowing the pieces knowing the background knowing what it means knowing you know how to play it like what it means to the people oh um, awesome and i i just went to well i didn't go to i virtually attended a mm-hmm. workshop with serena jimenez serena yeah yeah, yeah. and She's um awesome. i loved i tend to be like now we're going to learn a Filipino song, like make this big thing out of it. But I really kind of glommed onto when she just kind of talked about just making it a natural part of any lesson. It's another song. Uh, These are my words, not her words, but my interpretation was, you know, use the song as if you're learning about this concept and you have a great song from the Philippines, use that song, use it or use a book and think of authentic ways Mm -hmm. to bring in. And so I love that idea of for a teacher out there who's like, how do I do this? What do I need to make this big unit on it? You can, but you can also just get a great song to help these concepts that you want to work on Mm -hmm. in your classroom all the time. And just kind of, as everybody says this word, normalize the use of all kinds of fantastic literature, mm-hmm. you know, for your students. So thank you for making another piece, you know, in that fantastic, fantastic repertoire uh, world for us to use. And I hope, are are you thinking, are you in process of doing a new book or thinking about it? I hate, like, as a person who's always supposed to be writing a book, I'm 
I don't want to put any undue pressure <laughs> on someone else. Because <laughs> it's like, if you say it out loud, people are like, when's the book coming? Yeah, and I have to knock on wood. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mm. um, I have an idea. I but feel that. It's sort of just, yeah. Floating I, out there. Yeah, and I'm still sort of like recuperating from the oh. experience of writing this well, one. Well, it's and... pretty recent, so why am I? This yeah. is like asking <laughs> asking the mother the mother of the newborn like at <laughs> the hospital. <laughs> I was like, why are you asking me that? That's what happened when I finished one book, and people are like, "When's the next?" I'm like, "When's the next?" I like, it's going to take <laughs> me five years to recover from that one. My body and brain are still healing right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> it's please don't ask me what I'm going to do. At least wait a week. <laughs> well thank you for writing what you did and if you never wrote another thing this is such a valuable uh, piece heck with everyone else for me so isn't it all just about how things relate to me that's what my kids say <laughs> that's what they say I think so yeah. no yeah. I appreciate it and thank you so much for being on the podcast i'd love to have you back you know and talk about other stuff maybe we'll have a filipino teacher round table oh um, that would be so cool wouldn't that be awesome that. it yeah. would be um <laughs> but thank you for being here thank you for having me missy it's hard to communicate how affirming and encouraging it was to talk to tiffany not only because she is a Filipino-American music teacher, but because she's just a really cool human being who is honest, real, and funny, and I have such high esteem for those qualities. Hearing her own struggles, when she felt caught between cultures, and how she's come to terms with it and embraced who she is was personally meaningful to me, and just another reminder of how powerful it is for us to see ourselves in others and to be represented in the places that are important to us. Thank you so much, Tiffany. I am thankful you agreed to be a guest. If you want to learn more about Tiffany and her new song collection, please check out the episode page at bit.ly slash musicedamplified, where you can see her full bio as well as links to her Instagram and to her book. If you have questions or comments for me, send them to musicedwithmissy at gmail.com or reach out to me on the Music Ed with Missy Facebook page, on Instagram at Music Ed with Missy, or on Twitter at DocStrong26. I mean this sincerely. I always love hearing from you, or at least most of the time. <laughs> the podcast music was composed and performed by Jeremy and Owen Strong. Jeremy also serves as the audio engineer and editor for the podcast. Please, would you share this podcast with others to help me get the word out? As always, thank you for spending time with me. You are a busy person and life demands so much from you. I hope that this time was worthwhile and that you are motivated to reflect on your philosophy and practice. I'll see you next time. But until then, keep doing all you can to create a more joyful, musical, thoughtful, and just world for your students, their families, and the community. Mm -hmm.